So if you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn to 3 John. John's third epistle, at least of the ones recorded in the canon of Scripture. Book of 3 John. This is the shortest book in the Bible, at least by way of the number of words. Um, 2 John has it beat in the number of verses. There's 15 in this, 13 in 2 John. But this has fewer words. So it's the shortest book in the Bible, so it'll be the shortest sermon that I've ever preached, right? (laughs) Don't get your hopes up. But it will be shorter. We wanted to leave time. We, we desperately need to hear from the McCulloughs and what God's doing uh, with you guys, uh, especially during this time, uh, but also want to leave time at the end to pray. Uh, but this letter, obviously, is written by the Apostle John himself. It's written to a guy named Gaius. Gaius was John's spiritual child. You mentioned Zoe as your spiritual daughter. Gaius was the spiritual child of the Apostle John. We don't know why. Perhaps he shared the gospel with him. Perhaps Gaius came to faith in Christ under the teaching and preaching ministry of the Apostle John when he was in town. Perhaps it's, it's, probably, it's quite likely that, that the Apostle John stayed in Gaius' house uh, because that's what Gaius is known for, uh, being hospitable to gospel workers who come to town to preach the gospel. So perhaps he was discipled by John. Uh, But John considers him the spiritual child, and in this letter, John is commending Gaius for how he treats gospel workers. So we want to listen to that as we read. I'm going to read the whole chapter, or excuse me, the whole book. It's only one chapter, 15 verses, Um, but we want to focus on verses 5 through 8. There are three people that we're presented with in this letter, Um, three three people, Two of them come from the same church, Gaius, who uh, is, shows hospitality and care and love and concern uh, for gospel workers who come to town, and this other guy named Diotrephes, who doesn't show any hospitality. In fact, he shows just the opposite. Uh, and so we're going to focus on Gaius. Um, the other guy that's mentioned is Demetrius. And it's interesting, the way that he's referred to, John commends Demetrius to Gaius. And so that has led scholars to believe that Demetrius is probably the one who carried this letter to Gaius. He probably carried the letter, and as, as Gaius is reading this, it, Demetrius is probably on Gaius's doorstep as Gaius reads this for the first time. So let's read it ourselves, the book of Third John. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are who testified to your love before the church, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. 
So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. Let's pray. Father, how encouraging it is to um, to hear from our brother Steve and God, what you have led him to do, led their family to do in evacuating. I know firsthand that was a heart-wrenching decision that he yielded to. But Lord, we see yet again your hand of providence and how you have used this time to further the ministry. And God, we thank you for that that you are sovereign in all things. And Father, we ask that you would continue to use them in mighty ways and prepare them for a return to their home. God, we, we ask that you would speak to us this morning through your word to equip us and enable us and encourage us to be a church that does well at caring for and loving supporting, not just sending, but supporting and seeing to the needs of those who go to the front line in places like the McCulloughs and the Sanders have gone, places that we've not personally been called to uproot and move to, but places to which you have nonetheless called each of us because you have called part of us to go. And so, Father, show us how to be better at this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Samuel Pierce, Andrew Fuller, John Ryland, John Sutcliffe. Names you probably don't know. Unless you're a church historian, probably unaware of what those names even mean. But you probably know the name William Carey, known today as the father of the modern missionary movement. William Carey, at the age of 31, young 30s, uprooted his family, his wife and children, left the comforts of England, and moved to India, where he spent the rest of his life laboring for the gospel. Among many, many other things, during his time in India, he translated the scriptures, not into one, not into two, not into three, but into six languages. Some missionaries spend their entire career, their entire life, translated into one language. God used him to translate it into six. But it all started with a small group of men who met in 
a small room in London in 1792. It was a gathering of the Baptist Missionary Society, which sounds impressive, but it was a very, very small group of particular Baptists who had become convicted about the lost around the world who so desperately needed the gospel brought to them. And so they met in London in 1792 to consider the prospect of sending William Carey to India. Carey had expressed a desire to go and take the gospel to India. And so it was decided at this meeting that he would be the one to go and that these others would stay. That they would stay behind and that they would care for the financial and material needs of William and his family. John Ryland later would write about this meeting, and he would say this, Our undertaking to India really appeared to me on its commencement to be somewhat like a few men who were deliberating about the importance of penetrating into a deep mine which had never before been explored. We had no one to guide us. And while we were deliberating, Carey, as it were, said, Well, I will go down if you will hold the rope. But before he went down, as it seemed to me, he took an oath from each of us at the mouth of the pit to this effect, that while we lived, we should never let go of the rope. I'm here to tell you that by God's grace, they were able to keep that promise to the dying breath. They never let go of the rope. And this enabled God to use William Carey in these incredible ways that we know and remember today, to forward the gospel ministry in India and to set a framework for forwarding the gospel to the ends of the earth elsewhere. There are a lot of biographies of William Carey, the best of which is probably from his great-grandson who wrote a biography about his great-grandfather. Lots of biographies about him. I personally don't know of biographies about these men. Perhaps they're out there. Yet their contribution to the modern missionary movement simply cannot be understated or overstated. See, God doesn't call all of us to go. Yes, all of us who have been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, all of us are sent. We are all of us Jesus' witnesses, ambassadors for Christ, ambassadors for the gospel wherever we go and live. But not all of us will go to Southeast Asia or Boston or Ghana or wherever God sends missionaries and church planters. Not all of us will go anywhere other than where he has us living and working today. But all of us are to be engaged in that global work. All of us. As John Piper famously says, with respect to global gospel mission work, we're either a goer or, or we're a sender or we're disobedient. That's the only options that we have. I pray that the Lord raises up more goers. I pray that he raises up from among us more goers. We were able to listen to some 
uh, a conference this week that specifically talks about preparing people to go. I pray regularly that God would raise up from among us, perhaps my children, perhaps your children, perhaps you, that God would raise up more among us that would go, that we would have the privilege of sending. But for now, we have the families like the McCulloughs, like the Sanders, and others whom God has given us the privilege to send. They are the goers and we are the senders. They've gone down into that dark mine. And we as a church, we are holding the rope. May we hold it tightly and carefully and generously and lovingly for each of them. Gaius in our text here in 3 John, he was a rope holder. He held the rope for these brothers as John refers to them a number of times. These are gospel workers who have been sent out by the Apostle John to do gospel work. These are the church planters, the the missionaries and so forth, the evangelists. And and through Gaius' example here in 3 John, we can learn some things about what it means to be a good rope holder. I've got seven lessons for us this morning from this passage, seven lessons about rope holding. First, rope holding is a faithful thing. It's a faithful thing. Look at verse 5. John says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers. The Greek word for faith is pistis in the Greek. And it's another word for believing. So whenever you see the word faith, we should think of believing something. It has to do with believing. And here it's used as an adjective to describe the kind of effort that Gaius made in caring for gospel workers. So we can say that it took faith for Gaius to hold the rope for these brothers. Why did it require faith? What was it that he had to believe in order to help them? Well, first of all, he had to believe that while God had called these brothers to leave what was comfortable and to go out to what was uncomfortable, that God had likewise called him to a role of supporting them. He had to believe that this was his purpose. This was his job. This was his role in the mission to hold the rope, to support those who were on the front line. He also had to believe in the message that those gospel workers were propagating. If you go back and read the second letter that John wrote, 2 John, that was written specifically for when gospel workers come to you who do not affirm sound teaching. How do you handle that? What do you do with them? But 3 John is written when gospel workers come to you who do affirm sound teaching. And Gaius here is commended for how he does that. And so Gaius knows and loves truth, and he affirms that these gospel workers are delivering the true gospel. But helping these gospel workers also required faith because it required sacrifice. In fact, we can make that an entire new statement, that holding the rope also requires sacrifice. And to be willing to sacrifice for the mission of God requires that we have great faith in God if we are to sacrifice for him. What kind of sacrifice did it involve for Gaius? 
We don't know for sure. We have to read between the lines, but it probably included some sort of sacrifice of comfort. He opened up his home to them. He opened up his life to them, probably allowed them to stay with him. It was a, he sacrificed his safety. Second of all, these were strangers, as we're told. He didn't know them. Just as some of y'all do not know the McCullough's yet or the Sanders. They are strangers to you. And these were strangers who showed up at Gaius' doorstep and said, hey, I know John. Can I stay with you? I need to do gospel work in your town. Imagine that inconvenience, much less risk of safety. He sacrificed his time. We don't know what Gaius' paying job was, but it was probably not providing care and a hotel, if you will, for gospel workers. So he took time from his paying job. It also required sacrifice financially for him. John later mentions in verse 7 that these gospel workers were under the conviction that they would not accept any help from Gentiles. And that word meant in this context unbelievers, those who did not affirm faith in Christ. They were not going to accept any help from them. And so it was the role and responsibility of those inside the church to help. And this is something that Gaius took seriously and he took to heart. Also for Gaius, at least in his local church setting, helping and caring for and loving gospel workers who came to town in the name of Christ and then in the name of the Apostle John specifically, helping them and caring for them and opening his door to them also required him in that setting to sacrifice man's approval and perhaps to sacrifice even his standing in the church. Gaius was probably a leader in his church there in town. But there was another leader in that church, this guy named Diotrephes. And John tells us about Diotrephes in verses 9 and 10. Diotrephes, we're told, not only refused to welcome the brothers who came from the apostle John, but he also stopped those who did. And and he sought to put them out of the church. And so in his setting, Gaius was in fact risking excommunication if Diotrephes got his way. Simply because he was sheltering and helping and loving those who came from the Apostle John with the gospel. Rope holding for us also will involve sacrifice. It should involve a sacrifice of time a sacrifice of money, perhaps a sacrifice of comfort. We probably won't sacrifice safety, but maybe inconvenience. We probably won't risk excommunication like Gaius did, but perhaps giving so much time and so much money and so much effort to helping those who are on the front line, it simply won't be understood by those in our culture. It requires sacrifice. Thirdly, it involves effort. I know that's obvious, but we see here that John specifically commends Gaius, not just for his thoughts about hospitality to gospel workers, but for his action and his effort in doing so. It says in verse 5, Beloved, it is a faithful thing that you do in your efforts for these brothers. There was effort involved. Popular adage goes, out of sight, out of mind, Right? And sadly, that can happen with people too. That when they're no longer here, they're no longer with us, we no longer see them like we do this morning. 
we can, as fallen individuals, we can begin to forget them. Not that we forget who they are or forget their name, but we begin to forget their needs, forget their challenges, forget what they're going through, because we don't see them. May that not happen to us. May we make the effort to hold the rope well to those who have gone out from us. The McCulloughs, the Sanders, Kim and Chris, Kim and, uh, uh, Christian and Kimmy White in downtown Atlanta and Glendale. Um, Troy and Jerry Masters in Quanta, Ghana. Joe and Kim Kelly in Slovenia and their family. They have gone down that dark mine. And we're holding the rope on the other end. May we hold that rope well. May we hold it tightly. And may we put in the effort that it requires to hold tightly. Fourthly, rope holding is a display of love. Verse 6 says that these brothers, when these brothers returned to the Apostle John after having spent time with Gaius and experiencing his hospitality, they came back to the Apostle John, who was at Ephesus, that's where John was, and they came back to the church and they testified to Gaius' love. Look at verse 6. So they testified to your love before the church. So the church at Ephesus gathered, and, and when the church at Ephesus was gathering, these brothers stood up and testified before the church, not just that Gaius was a nice guy, not just that he was generous, but he loved them. He loved them from the heart. What a legacy. He didn't consider them an ob- obligation. Oh, I guess I'm going to have some more mouths to feed now that I've got people living in my house. I've got more bed linens to wash. These people are staying with me now. No, he loved them. And he loved them in a way that they knew, that they implicitly knew that he loved them and that they were willing to testify before the church that he loved them. How can we love our missionaries well? Well, first of all, we can give to them. Just like those four men said, we will hold the road. We will take care of your family, your needs, your provisions as long as we have breath. We too should care for the financial and material needs of our missionaries and church planters. And that, and that, that means not just giving to the church because we give, but many of us in this room also give directly to uh, some of our missionaries and church planters. And we've got an opportunity this morning to take care of a need that one of our missionaries has, to continue to expand the gospel where it is desperately, desperately needed to give hope of eternal life. So giving generously, uh, but also just, just knowing them, knowing them and knowing their needs, praying for them, Never underestimate the power that your prayer has in the lives of our missionaries that have been sent out from us to encourage them. Correspond with them. Steve mentioned the the newsletter. All of our church planters and missionaries send out newsletters. If If you're a member, you should be getting all of them. If you aren't, go to the website. There's contact information. Get all of them. But go beyond that. Because we have something available to us today that William Carey and his family didn't have when they left England for 40 years in India. We've got email. (laughs) 
If they wanted to correspond with somebody back in England, they had to send a letter over ship. It took weeks if it ever got there. But we've got immediate communication. We've got WhatsApp. We've got ways to communicate with our missionaries and church planters. So find out what they are. You, you, you got the, in fact, make sure that y'all put that back up on the screen sometime in the middle of my sermon. Just It's not as important as their contact information. Get their email. Get their WhatsApp address. Correspond with them. Love their kids. Love their kids. Children of missionaries and church planters sometimes sacrifice more than even their parents. As they leave aunts and uncles, as they leave, leave grandparents, as they leave their friends, and they don't get the spotlight. <laughs> how can you, how can we love these precious kids well love them provide them for them when they're on furlough when they're back a place to stay as many of you have opened your homes a car to use food to help with expenses and traveling from one church to another from one supporter to another mood money for meals what importantly ask them how you can love them well ask them so what do you need? What, do we, what would it look like for you to know that we love you? Because we do. We want to show them that. Fifthly, uh, rope holding is a form of worship. Now I know that everything that we do really is a form of worship as we do it for the glory of God. But there's something that John says here to Gaius that tells us something about the quality of rope holding that we're to engage in. In verse 6, John exhorts Gaius to keep on going. Don't stop. You're doing great at rope holding, Gaius. Don't stop. Keep doing this. And he says, these brothers testified to your love before the truth. Now, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Send them on their journey now in a manner worthy of God. What do you mean by that? Well, we could understand that in a couple of different ways. One, we could understand John to be saying here that that we're to take care of gospel workers in a way that God would consider worthy. In other words, God is watching us and how we care for our missionary families and, and church planting families and gospel workers, how we care for his servants. But we can also understand this verse to mean that that we're to treat them in the same way that we would treat God. In other words, Gaius, take care of them like you would take care of God. Imagine if Jesus showed up at your house in a few days, decided to stay with you a few days. Would you give him the back room or the best room? Would you give him some leftovers to eat fresh? John says, treat them like you would treat God. We wouldn't give God leftovers. We wouldn't give God pocket change. We should love them as we would love God. And how does God demonstrate his love and his grace towards us who are in Christ? He lavishes his grace on us. Ephesians 1.8 says that the riches of his grace he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. He lavishes his grace on us. He lavishes his love on us. What if that were to be the standard of how we care for our missionary and church planning families? That we do so lavishly. 
Why would we do that? Because it's a form of worshiping God. But I think rope holding is a form of worship also because of what John says in verse 7. So in verse 6, he says, send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. And then in verse 7, he tells us why. For they have gone out for the sake of the name. They've gone out for the sake of the name. The name is the name of Jesus. Whenever the name of Jesus is referred to in that sense with the definite article at the beginning, the name, it's referring to the totality of the person of Jesus Christ. All of his attributes, all of his qualities, all of his deity, all of, all of the, the gospel and his glory. That's why Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. The, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's the name. Peter preached in Acts chapter 4, that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven, given among men, by which we must be saved. No other name. And because these gospel workers are going out for the sake of the name, then we ought to care for them in a manner worthy of God. It is a form of worship. Two more lessons about rope holding. One is that rope holding is the job of the church. We mentioned this earlier in verse 7, where John says that these workers would not accept, these gospel workers would not accept any help from the Gentiles, from unbelievers that were in town. And this is because he knew that the job of funding and caring for gospel workers is the job of the church. It's the responsibility of the body of Christ, not an unbelieving world. This is part of why we don't do a whole lot of bake sales and selling candy for missionaries and mission trips. Years ago, when we send out mission, folks on mission trips, we would have them send letters to their lost family and friends. And I'm grateful for our elder, John, who is leading our mission team over the last couple of years as he has led us to lean into this concept that it is the responsibility of the church to fund the mission of God. It is not the responsibility of those that we're trying to reach with the gospel to fund the mission. It's our responsibility. It's our job. It's how God set it up. It's our responsibility. And then finally, church, rope holding makes us partners in this mission. Rope holding makes us partners. Verse 8, John says, Therefore we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers in the truth that we may be fellow workers in the truth. You see, not all of us are called to go down that dark mine. But as we hold the rope for those who do, we're with them. We're part of it. We're part of the team. We're, we're engaged in that same mission. We are fellow workers in that same work. And what is this mission that we're fellow workers in? Proclaiming the gospel to the nations. Proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. Why would someone uproot their family 
and moved to the other side of the earth, moved to a place where it, the cost of living is three times what it is here with a family of six. Why would someone do that? The answer is to tell the world about the God-man, Jesus Christ, who came from heaven to earth to break the curse of sin and death by dying on a cross in our place. If you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you're listening or if you're here and you've not come to faith in Christ yet, you may be wondering, why would someone do that? When you've been transformed by this good news from a sinner to a saint, from an enemy of God into a child of God, when he puts then you will understand. And then you will say, I'm either going or I'm sending. There's no middle ground. Because this news needs to get out. And he's chosen the church as the means which, by which he will get it out. This is the greatest news in the world. It's worth descending into a dark mine to take it to those who desperately need it. And it's worth us standing on the mouth of that pit, holding tightly with both hands so that they can go and take it.